0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, and we claim right now in this moment that our only hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ. Our only hope for deliverance, our only hope for joy, our only hope for lasting satisfaction is in your Son, Jesus Christ, alone. Father, we remember your word where you say, fear not, for I am with you. Be not afraid, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so I do indeed pray this morning, Father, that you would uphold me. Would you open our eyes to the wondrous things in your law today? God, your word is dripping with goodness. And so we pray that we would taste and see today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question, and the question is this. What makes for a good story? Have you ever thought about that before? What elements must be present in a movie or a book for you to sit back after consuming it in its various forms and breathe out a sigh? contentment. There's many ways that you could answer this question. Someone might point to character development as the most important. Others might remind us of the importance of world building and an immersive and captivating setting that the characters find themselves in. Still others might highlight the importance of a good villain. What is Batman without the Joker anyway, right? But as important as all of these things are, J.R.R. Tolkien would argue that when it comes to works of fantasy in particular, there is one element that rises to the top. One piece of a story that is so crucial that one might rightly argue that without it, a story is not complete at all. What is this element that he speaks of? It's the joy and the consolation of a happy ending. Let me read for you Tolkien's own words in his essay titled, On Fairy Stories. He says, the consolation of fairy stories is the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, I love this, of the good catastrophe the sudden joyous turn. This happy ending does not deny the existence of catastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. But what it does deny is universal and final defeat, giving us a fleeting glimpse of joy. Joy beyond the walls of the world, potent as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures it can give to the child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of breath, a beat and lifting of the heart often accompanied with tears. This is the consolation and the joy of a good story. And I start this way this morning because as we open up the text and look at Psalm 52 together, things indeed look very bleak. We find David facing an absolute catastrophe. And yet, as we consider the Psalm as a whole, we find that somehow, amazingly, David is not devastated by what he encounters. And as we press into why this is the case, We will find that this is due to one indispensable piece of knowledge that David has learned to cling to. Namely, he knows the end of the story. He knows how the story ends. He knows what's coming. He knows that even this catastrophe will not have the final word. And so, as we turn our attention to the text, we're going to find three things this morning. First, In verses 1 through 4, we find the catastrophe. Then, in verse 5, we find the turn. And lastly, in verses 6 through 9, we find the happy ending. Let us begin in verse 1 with the catastrophe. Here, David begins this psalm with a question Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Right from the beginning, we should note that this psalm has a very different flavor than perhaps we are used to. The vast majority of the 150 psalms in the Psalter are addressed directly to God himself. But a small handful, such as Psalm 2 and here in Psalm 52, begin by directly addressing an evildoer. And here, David zeroes in on one worker of evil, one who is boasting, whom he calls a mighty man. So, David's question begs for us to further questions that we must answer this morning. Namely, who is this mighty man and what exactly is he boasting of? And in this particular psalm, David does not leave us to guess about either of these things. Turn your attention with me for just a moment to the prescript of this psalm, just before verse 1. He says to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Here we are introduced to the villain of our story. Here we have our mighty man, a man named Doeg, Doeg the Edomite in particular. And we can read all about this man's evil exploits back in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. So what I wanna do this morning as we get started is to simply summarize what's happening in the background. It's not a familiar story to many of us, and so I wanna walk through this rather quickly just to get us up to speed with what's happening here. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David is on the run. He has just found out for certain that King Saul wants him dead. And so he and a small company of men fled from the town of Gibeah with very little provisions. And the very first place that David stopped for help was a place called Nob, which was actually a city of priests. And David approached a particular priest named Ahimelech for help, asking for food and for weapons. Now Ahimelech on his part was suspicious of this. This is an odd thing for a high commander in Saul's army to come with such a small company of men. And yet in the end, Ahimelech does indeed give David help. He gives him five loaves of holy bread to eat and also the sword of Goliath, which I think is pretty awesome. Now without knowing it, Ahimelech has just become guilty Of aiding and abetting an enemy of the state. King Saul wanted David dead, and by his actions, Ahimelech has just essentially said, hey, I'm with David, right? I'm supporting his right to kingship. Now, this of course could be disastrous for Ahimelech, but only if word of what he has done actually reaches the ears of King Saul. And just before this chapter closes, we read this. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So now, The stage is set. Ahimelech has helped David and this man, Doeg, was there to see it. And as we turn the page to 1 Samuel chapter 22, we find King Saul doing what he does best in the Old Testament. Throwing himself a massive pity party. We see this again and again in the life of Saul. Why? Because so far, David has given him the slip. And so he whines and he sulks because he cannot get his way. I love this. He says, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And so at Saul's lowest moment, when he is looking for a fall man, one person steps up to deliver some news. We read this in verse nine. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Again, at the moment that Saul is looking for someone to pin all of the blame on, Doeg the despicable steps up and he says, I know something, Saul. I've got news for you. I'm not afraid to rat out even a priest. And what happens next should make our stomachs churn because in his fury, Saul summons not only Ahimelech, but all of the priests at Nob to come to him. And after questioning Ahimelech, he orders his servants to put not just him to death, but all of the priests at Nob. And the text tells us that in response to these orders, not a man moved. Not a man moved, even at the order of the king. Saul's servants were more righteous than he. And so, what does Saul do? Who does he turn to when all of his servants disobey him? He looks once more to the man who ratted them out in the first place. He turns again to Doeg. He says, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob the city of priests he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, donkey and sheep he put to the sword. This is the mighty man of verse one of Psalm 52. What he boasts over is not a military victory over armed men, but the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children. This is the bleak beginning of this very dark Psalm. David sets the tone for this whole psalm here in verse 1, and we get the impression that as he calls Doeg a mighty man, he does so with a tone of mocking. What a mighty man you are, Doeg, slaughtering those who are unsuspecting and without weapons. But notice what David says next. Seemingly out of nowhere come these words in the rest of verse 1. David says this, The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Seems rather abrupt in the text, doesn't it? But I think what David is doing here with this sudden insertion of God's love in the face of great evil is reminding himself and reminding Doeg and reminding all of us as the hearers that as dark as this cloud is that has settled over the sky of David's life, he is confident that it will not outlast the sun. David stares evil in the eyes in Psalm 52, and he says, God's love will outlast you. And then, and only then, does David turn his attention back towards Doeg's evil deeds. Look at verse 3 with me. He says of Doeg, you love evil more than good. David makes clear here where the wickedness of Doeg comes from. Long before Doeg committed this atrocity, atrocious things were already gripping Doeg's heart. This great wickedness was no accident. Doeg loved evil. His heart was filled with disordered loves and his mind was filled with wicked thoughts. He loved evil, that which he should not love right? And he hated good, that which he should have loved. And eventually, these wicked desires spilled over into unspeakable acts. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely why Proverbs 4.23 gives us the following warning. Above all else, guard your hearts, for everything you do flows from it. We need to hear this brothers and sisters because here at the very beginning of this Psalm we need to realize that we too are capable of atrocious acts. If we go on filling our minds with wicked things and we go on setting our hearts on disordered desires then catch this, wickedness will spill out from us as well. We're no different from Doeg the Despicable. We must keep our hearts with all vigilance. But David doesn't stop here. David spends the the vast majority of these four verses focused on one thing and one thing only. He zeroes in on the wickedness of Doeg's tongue. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. David says, long before Doeg ever unsheathed his sword, he had already unsheathed a far more deadly weapon, that of his tongue. Like a razor blade in its deadliness. Listen afresh to James chapter 2, where we hear about the destructive power of the tongue. It says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell." Do you guys realize that in the last 10 years, over 15 million acres of California have burnt because of wildfires? is that a staggering number? 15 million acres. That's one-eighth of the state of California. California is not a small state. Consider this, though. How many of those millions of acres, how many of those fires began with the flick of a cigarette? You ever think about that? And as we consider the, the wickedness happening here in Psalm 52, David says, that's what the tongue is like. That's what the evil of our tongues is like. In the same way that a flick of a cigarette began this blaze, the flick of a tongue can begin a blaze of destruction. David wants us to see this so clearly. He wants us to see the power of words, the power of our words to kill, the power of words to give life. Well, would we do this morning to mark the words of Jesus and to mark the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.29 when he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. No corrupting talk. Oh, the destructive power of the tongues, let us wield our tongues as followers of Jesus Christ, not for evil, but for good, not to break down, but to build up, not to destroy, but to give life. We might easily stop here and give a whole message on this point, but for now, we must return to David himself. Let's review for just a moment what's happening here with David. David is on the run. He is being hunted by the most powerful man in the kingdom. He has little food and provisions, and he has an adversary named Doeg who is bent on his destruction, wielding his tongue, going after David at every turn. And now David has just discovered that he has occasioned the death of 85 priests and their families. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. How is it possible that David doesn't simply lay down and die here? Like, how can you get out of bed in the morning with this kind of atrocity staring you in the face? How many men and women have been absolutely debilitated by lesser tragedies than these? How can David keep on going? Answer, let's look at verse five together, where we discover the turn. Here, we read this. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The one reason in the universe that David is not utterly devastated by what just happened is this. He knows how the story is going to end. God is going to break you down forever, Doeg. It's David's consideration of eternity that gives him strength to carry on. And really, we see this expressed again and again in the Psalter. Think about Psalm 73. Here, Asaph has just spent 15 verses talking about his jealousy of evildoers, right? He said, how can it be, God, that they seem to prosper? Everything they put their hands to, it seems like you just pour out blessing on them. And yet, at the same time, the righteous seem to be just scraping by. Like, I'm, I'm hardly surviving here, God, and they're prospering in everything that they do. Like, how, how does this make any sense at all? And then we read this in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task, until, catch this, I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end." This is the key, brothers and sisters. You wanna know how to fight against evil, like what we're seeing in the life of David? Consider the end of the wicked. And in contrast, you wanna know how to be hopeless? As a Christian? You want to know how to be devastated? You want to know how to be totally debilitated? Let yourself believe that this life is all there is. Let yourself believe that the horrific headlines will have the final word. Let yourself believe that wicked men will go unpunished for their acts. Let yourself believe that all of this tragedy in our lives and in our families and in our world is pointless. It's a way to be devastated. But brothers and sisters, I declare to you, with David, under the authority of God's word, that this is not the end of the story. As one of my favorite liturgies puts it, we declare that evil and death Suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. They will not have the final word, brothers and sisters. God's steadfast love will outlast this. God's righteousness will not let evil go unpunished. God's jealousy for his people will not let these tauntings go unanswered. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Take that promise to the bank as evil stares you in the face. We can endure because it's only a matter of time until Christ will put every enemy under his feet. By God's grace, we can endure in the face of great tragedy because we know how the story ends. As Martin Luther once wrote, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. It's coming. It's only a matter of time until all the wickedness that we see in the world will be once and for all subdued under the feet of Jesus Christ. The turn is coming, and it will be glorious when it comes. This brings us to our final point this morning. We see this in verses 6 through 9. We find the happy ending. Look with me at verse 8. Here, David says this, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. David is absolutely brilliant in his imagery here. He compares himself to a green olive tree. Why an olive tree? Let me ask you, do you know how long an olive tree can actually live? Have you ever dug into this? I know I'm kind of a, a nerdy Bible guy and I love this kind of thing. But this is absolutely fascinating, and I think it points us to the reason that David says, olive tree. Not just tree, like Psalm chapter one, but, but olive tree. Here's why. I totally geeked out over this as I researched this this week, okay? So, conservative estimates of how long an olive tree can live is 1,500 years. You guys get that? Fif- 1,500 years. And And scientists disagree about how long it could be. Some argue for like up to 2,500 years or further, right? And the reason they disagree is this. Nobody's ever seen how long an olive tree can live, right? That's like, uh, what, 20 lifetimes at least of people? So like go back as far as you can in your ancestry and like there's probably an olive tree from back then right? Like, it's not impossible that Jesus Christ was walking the earth when one of the olive trees in Palestine was there today. Like, it's not impossible, which just absolutely blows my mind. And so David says, I am like a green olive tree. Think back to verse 5. David has just said, you will be uprooted in a moment, but my roots will stand. They're gonna stand like a green olive tree. This contrast is so similar to Psalm chapter one. Remember these words. The one who meditates on God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. You want to know why David stands in the day of judgment and why Doeg falls? You have to look no further than the roots of these two men, right? And and David says, come look at these roots. Look at verses 6 through 7. It says, shall see in fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and sought refuge in his own destruction." Think about it like this, okay? I don't know if husbands in here, if you ever get honey, honey-do lists, all right? I get, I get honey-do lists every once in a while, things that I need to go do. And, um, and I'll just confess here freely, there's, there's items on the list that, that tend to stay on the list for a while, okay? And uh, one of those, one of those uh, such honeydew items was uh, Lauren had said that she wanted me to pull up some trees in our backyard, okay? Now, these trees were only about my height, little like decorative pine trees, and yet I was like, man, I don't know how, how far down those roots go. Like, this is probably going to be pretty bad. And so I just put it off, put it off, put it off. And finally, one day, it had, it had rained the night before. And I was like, all right, this is my opportunity. I'm going to go out there and try and pluck up these roots, okay? I put one shovel down and popped up the root in, in, in like one effort of my shovel. Just out. And plucked it up with one hand, right? Just, just gone. I'm just, this is, this is amazing. I walked over to the next one, grabbed it. No shovel at all. I, w- I was done in like five minutes, right? Absolutely amazing. And David says, this is what it's like, Doeg. This is how God is going to uproot you. But you want to know what my life is like? I'm like a green olive tree that's going to last 1,500 years. And in fact, it's going to go on forever. Like he, he, he's highlighting the fact that I am not going to be uprooted. And again, why is that the case? Look at the roots of David's life. It says in the second half of verse eight, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. David has put his trust in something solid. He has not, like Doeg, trusted in riches, right? He hasn't put his roots down like Doeg. As we read in Proverbs eleven four. riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. David has an anchor for his soul, the steadfast love of God. And so he says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. He stares evil in the eye and he says, the love of my God will outlast you. As we turn to close this morning, let me just ask you this. How can it be that a sinner like David, capable of Psalm 51 type sins, can now find confidence that he will be saved in the day of wrath. That's an important question. Psalm 52 is put after 51 for a reason. I think we're supposed to ask this question. But more importantly than this question, we need to ask this, how do you and I become like a green olive tree in the house of God. How do we become rooted in the love of God? And as we close, I would invite you to consider with me these words of George Herbert, which he wrote about our Savior Jesus Christ. He says, This, all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit. But I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all but only me. Brothers and sisters, we can say that we are like a green olive tree only because Christ hung on a tree for us. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God was treated like dough egg in our place. You know that? We stand because he was broken. We are stable because he was torn from his tent. We are secure because the son of God was uprooted for you and for me. Let us look to the cross, brothers and sisters. Let us say together with David, only there that I am like a green olive tree in the house of God forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we praise you for your mercy. We praise you that though we deserve to be treated as doeg, that though we deserve to be uprooted, that though we deserve the full fury of your wrath, that you were pleased at just the right time to pour your wrath on your son, Jesus Christ, instead. And so God, I pray for each of us here this morning that you would teach us, oh Father, teach us to put the roots of our faith down deep into your love. God, help us not to trust in riches. Help us to turn away from everything that the world says is secure and instead put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who bled and died for us on a tree. Let us say together as we look to him that we indeed are like a green olive tree and the house of God forever. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.